from Bayside Church International Victor Harbour. This is Chad Mansbridge. Hello again. Are you ready? Last week, I described how I went about my own personal audit in listening to my first six sermons from this year because I want to be a person that practices what I preach. And so I suffered and listened to my own voice for six sessions and listened to those messages. I shared something of that with you last week and most notably our four-part grow series. God spoke to us at the start of the year about being a people that grow, grow down, grow with, grow up and grow out. I'm not going to go over that again today, but I simply asked you and challenged you with the question, how are you going? How are you going with what God has spoken to us as a church community at the start of this year? And as summarizing that again last week, I looked at our first message for the year, which I launched out of from Luke 2017. Pun intended. Luke 2017, first sermon of the year. And I want to ask you to turn to that parable in, in the Gospel of Mark today. So Mark 12 And then Isaiah chapter 5, if you have a Bible, have Mark 12 and Isaiah 5 together. Today, I'm going to set a foundation for our new preaching series for summer, hence the picture. It's a new preaching series for summer. And uh, today, I'll be establishing basically the principle of truth uh, for this series and then examine three practical things we can do to outwork that truth in our life. So it's a very Chad Message. All right. I'm going to make a point, and then I'm going to give three practical outworkings or um, you know extrapolations of that uh, point. So we're going to read from Mark 12. This is Jesus speaking in the city of Jerusalem. His primary audience here are the Jewish religious leaders of the day, and he began to speak to them in parables. Are you ready? Hebrew. Uh, no. Mark chapter 12, verse one. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a pit for the wine press. And then he built a watchtower. Stop right there. This man has set himself up for a vineyard to do really well. He's gone out of his way to purchase the thing. He has dug up the soil and prepared it. He's put a wine press in. He's built a wall to protect it, a watchtower to keep an eye on everything that's going on. This owner of this vineyard has worked really hard to set up this vineyard to succeed. That's the first point of this parable. But then he said he rented this vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Give me a percentage of what has grown here, fellas. But they seized that servant, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. You don't want to be the fourth guy, do you? (laughs) I'll volunteer. He sent many others. Some of them they beat and others they killed. He had one left to send, his son, whom he loved. 
He sent him last of all, saying, Surely they'll respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, Look, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will all be ours. So they took him, they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. How many of you know enough of the scriptures to know where Jesus is going with this? Or the picture he's painting. Well, no surprise to those of you who are familiar with the Bible. And guess what? No surprise to the people at the day. They knew exactly what he was trying to say. Verse 9. What then will the owner of this vineyard do? Sounds charming. He will come, kill those tenants, and give the vineyard to others. In Matthew's Gospel, it says he will take the kingdom and give it to those who will bear fruit. Haven't you read this scripture? The stones are built and rejected, has become the capstone. The Lord himself has done this and it's marvellous in our eyes. That's what I preached at the start of the year. Then they looked, verse 12, for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him for a while and went away. They knew, these religious leaders in Jerusalem knew Jesus was giving this parable and talking about them. God has entrusted you with a vineyard. He's set up for success. Prophets have come over the years. You've dealt shamelessly with them. At the end of the era, God is going to send his son or has sent his son. You're going to kill him. And this vineyard's going to be taken away from you. They knew he was speaking against them. Why did they know this? Why did they take that personally? Some people just have a habit of taking everything personally. But why did they know Why did they believe that it was spoken against them? The answer, of course, is because they knew their Bibles. They were familiar with the prophets. The Bible was all that they knew. They didn't have TV, lucky dogs. They didn't have TV. So all they knew was the scriptures, and they knew that Jesus was pulling this parable out of Isaiah. So now let's turn to Isaiah chapter 5 and see what the prophet had said to God's people a few hundred years earlier. Isaiah 5. I'll read these scriptures and then I'll have some more momentum soon. Chapter 5, it's called the Song of the Vineyard. Again, this picture of the vineyard, okay? Isaiah 5. I will sing for the one I love about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, cleared it of stones, and then planted it with the choicest of vines. He built a watchtower in it. He cut out a wine press as well how many of you already see the similarities all right come on this is the picture of a farmer that we find out later is god who's bought a vineyard set it up for success and he's eventually going to say this represents the people of jerusalem he cut a wine press then he came and looked for a crop of good grapes but it yielded only bad fruit personally i think that means he wanted Red grapes and he got white grapes. And who likes white wine? I mean, nobody, right? (laughs) Verse 3. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for it that I've not already done? 
When I look for good grapes, why did it only yield bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to the vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it'll be destroyed. I'll break down its wall and it'll be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned or cultivated and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. But when he looked for justice and saw bloodshed, he looked for right righteousness but only heard cries of distress this i've explained this before so i won't go into the detail but this is spoken in a historical context where israel and jerusalem were two separate kingdoms they were severely disobeying god and in the covenant agreement that they had in that point in history God said, if you disobey my covenant and you don't bear good fruit like I command you, I myself will become your enemy and seek about your destruction. And for one kingdom, he did that by bringing the Assyrians and destroying them. By Jerusalem, who he's speaking to now, he does the same thing when he brings the Babylonians in to destroy them. Okay, this is the way God operated in the old covenant era. And so he speaks that in Isaiah. Jesus in the first century borrows all of this language and says, fellas, I've got a parable for you. There's a farmer with a vineyard. And it's not a good fruit, bad fruit thing. He kind of mixes it up, Jesus, because he's clever like that. He says, there's a man with a vineyard who set it up to succeed. But the farmers did not honor him with the fruit of that vineyard. So he sent his son. They killed the son. And God said, that's enough. I'm taking the kingdom from you and giving it to others. And they knew, just like Isaiah was speaking to Jerusalem in 586, whatever, BC. So now Jesus was speaking to them. This is a repeat of history. Some people say history repeats itself. It has to because nobody listens. Other people say history doesn't repeat itself. But it does rhyme Meaning, nothing ever happens exactly the same, but there are patterns, there are rhymes, there are rhythms, because again, they haven't, we haven't learned from the past. And Jesus is coming in the first century using a very similar word to Isaiah that he did five to six hundred years earlier. Here's the point, preacher. God set his people up success he poised them he prepared them to both bear good fruit and share that fruit with him for his glory God set his people up for success as good parents we endeavor to do the same for our children one of our goals as good parents is to set our kids up to succeed in life and when we start, when they're young, that basically just means meeting all their needs. Free food, free clothing, free baby wipes, putting them to bed, shelter, dry, warm, cool. We look after them. We, we lay everything on a platter. As they grow older, setting them up for success means adjusting our parenting and making decisions that will set them up to succeed as good adults. And so we make decisions like getting them involved in sport. It's a decision we've made as parents. 
um, was when, when Jesse was growing up as our, as our first kid, we made a decision that we want our kids to be involved in team sports. Now, if they don't take to it, then we, we adjust, but our preference was we want them to be involved in team sports because we want to set them up to succeed in life and there's a lot you can learn playing in team. We want our kids to learn how to win with dignity and how to lose with dignity. We want our kids to know, playing in a team, there will always be people better than you. And we want our kids to know, playing up in team, there will always be people you have to work with that are slower than you. One of the great things about our first son's basketball team growing up is that they had a, Downs, a kid with Down syndrome in their team for many years. And the character building of the kids on that team was awesome because of that. They're great kids. You've got someone who's weaker on the tra- team that you help along. I love team sport for that. I like them to have a coach that can encourage them and also stir them to exceed and to do better. I like that. So we made that decision. As our kids are getting older and they're starting to work jobs, we want to set them up to succeed. So we want them to earn their own money. Parents, come on. And so Jesse goes for his licence this week because he's 16 and he gets his licence and we didn't pay for it, did we? We paid half, that's right, that's what I said. Well obeyed. We, um, and I, we said, Jesse, we'll pay half. You pay half. We want to set you up to success, but we're not laying everything on a platter. We want you to own this as well. So we make decisions as parents, what's the point? To set our kids up to succeed in life, and God is the same with us. He is a good, good father. In this series, in the lead-up to summer... In the lead up to Christmas, which some people call the silly season. You know that phrase, don't you? Because people make silly decisions. We want to look at some of the big issues of life where God has set us up to succeed. Where God wants us to succeed. Where God empowers us to succeed. Where God instructs us as to how we can take part in that success that is destined for us. I want you as a church, we want you as a church to walk confident into into summer. Confident that he is good. Confident in God's wisdom. Confident to make honourable decisions and fruit-bearing choices. I love what Aaron shared before. A confidence to trust God in his instructions because we know God is setting me up to succeed. And that's why we've got the picture of me with my six-pack here playing volleyball. Because in volleyball, as you know, there are three main moves. The first move in volleyball is the dig. And that is a desperate, messy attempt to rescue and to save a ball. And it can look very undignified and it can be a bit unstructured and it's just a bit catastrophic, but you just go for it. You just dig that ball. It's just a salvation experience, uh, you know, exercise. The next move is the set. And that is far more calculated. That is far more concise. That is taking that messy situation that's just been rescued and clearly and confidently, strategically positioning that ball. It's setting it up. For a successful spike. Splam? No, it's spike. Slam. Oh, slam. 
Slam. Spike, who votes for Slam? Yes, whatever, okay. So dig, set, Spike. So God wants to set us up for success. And I now just want to look at three very practical ways that we can respond to that. Because the point with Israel's story that we are to learn from, they're a bad example. But they're a good example to learn from. Because you learn from bad examples. So they made mistakes. We want to not make the same mistakes they did. And we want to understand God set us up for success. Chad, I can't believe you've done this again. Yes, I have. I'm going to look at the ABCs of how to respond to see success in the big issues of life. A is simply this. Number one, we appreciate his initiatives. Appreciate his initiatives. Come on, say initiative. God is the initiator. All right? He is the great initiator. Some theologian with a funny name in the 19th century, 100 years ago, Von Hugel said this. He said, God is always previous. God is always previous. By the time you've got there, God's already been. Yeah? He was previously there. When you go through times like this, God is already there. And he's already worked something in that situation. It may be new to you because you think you live life in terms of linear time. This happens and this happens and this happens. But God is eternal. He lives outside of time. Time exists within him. And he is always there. The reason that God is always here is because he is always there. No matter where here is, he was there. Here, here. God is previous. It's what we call in theological terms God's prevenient grace. Prevenient grace. God always was, and now you have showed up. But God is the God of great initiative. And that's one of the things we see in that vineyard parable. The owner takes the initiative to set that vineyard up for a win. He takes all the initiative to make good preparation so that that thing can succeed. He said this to Moses when they started their journey in Exodus, chapter 23, and they're meeting God at Sinai. Okay, God says this, 23 verse 20. See, I am sending an angel before you to both protect you on your journey and lead you safely to the place I have prepared for you. Keep your eyes on that. I am going before you and I have prepared, past tense, a place in your future. It's in your future, but I've already been there. I have prepared a place you. God is previous. He is the great initiator. The point is, when we face the challenges of life, one of the first things we should do is acknowledge and appreciate that God has already been working on my behalf to set me up to succeed. God has already been working on my behalf behind the scenes, even if I can't see it yet. 
God has already been there. God has already been here. And so we say, Lord, thank you for what you have already provided, what you have already done. We appreciate his initiative. B, we believe his good intentions. We believe in his intentions. Do I need to do that preacher thing again? Everybody say intentions. <laughs> good preacher. All right. Appreciate his initiatives. Believe his intentions. If appreciating his initiatives is all about understanding and recognizing that God's hands are working for me, then believing his intentions is recognizing that God's heart is for me. His initiatives, God's hands are working for me. His intentions, God's heart is for me. God's motivation toward you is always good. His heart is for you. You should be able to quote this one off the top of your head. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. I have plans to prosper and not to harm you. I have plans to give you a hope and a future. And these plans come from his heart. They are not a desperate attempt at the last minute to put a band-aid on a situation that surprised him. I'm going to say that again. God's plans, goodness, to give you hope and a future are not a last-ditched effort because you took God by surprise or life took God by surprise. God was working on your behalf beforehand and his motive or his intentions have always been good. His desired desired and designed plans that are for your good. So we can say with Paul in Romans 8.28, for God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And even when things don't seem to be going our way, God's intentions are for your good. Is that right, Glenn? Even when things don't seem to be going your way, God's intentions are for your good. So you can be stripped away from your family. You can be betrayed by people that you love who lie about you and actually seek to kill you. You can be taken away from your family, away from your home. You can work really hard and keep an integrous heart and then be betrayed by the very people you've helped and be locked up and suffer because you've been actually innocent. You can keep your integrity, you can keep your character and you would be called Joseph. And you can stand up when your betrayers come back to you and you can say to them in Genesis 50 verse 20, what you intended to harm me with God intended for my good. We can believe his intentions. His hands have worked for me and his heart is for me. I'd like for you to believe that. 
to accept that as much as best as you know how <laughs> today. God is love. He wants what is best for you. You can trust his motivations and believe his intentions are pure and believe his intentions are good. Amen. We A, appreciate his initiatives. Thank you, Lord. You've gone before me. You've prepared a place. Your hands are working for me, have already worked for me. B, we believe his intentions. Your heart is for me. You want what is best for me because you are love. And C, in responding to God who sets us up for success, this is the lesson, one of the lessons that Israel did not learn. We cooperate with his instructions. Appreciate his initiatives, believe in his good-hearted intention and cooperate with his instructions, however unique they are to you because you might have a race to run that others don't. And God may tell you to do something that he doesn't tell others. So co cooperate with his instructions to you. The whole thing about growing down was about being rooted, remember that picture, growing down, into God's love and lordship. We believe his intentions, God is love, his heart's for me. C, we cooperate with his instructions, is appreciating that God is not only love, but God is Lord. He wants what's best for me, and he knows what's best for me. His initiatives are about his hands working for me. His intentions are about his heart that is towards me. And his instructions are about us acknowledging that his head is smarter than yours ever will be. How many of you learned that God's a bit cleverer than you? First Corinthians one twenty five says that even God's foolishness, quote, is wiser than human wisdom. And Isaiah 55 is a favourite for many of us where God says, my thoughts are not like yours and my ways are not quite like yours, guys. They are much higher. My thoughts, my ways are much higher than yours. And so we take the great old adage of trusting and obeying. Trust and obey. There is no other way. Well, there is, but it's not a good, it doesn't do you any good. Trust and obey. Believe his intentions. God is for me. God is love. Cooperate with his instructions because he is Lord. He wants what's best and he knows what's best. And so I will trust and obey. But because many of us, possibly some of you that aren't familiar, too familiar with us or new to us, I do want to make one thing clear. Part of my job is to explain the Bible properly and I want to not leave a big question unanswered. I want to make this clear. Some of you, you will know this, but I want to reinforce something strongly on this point when it comes to obedience. Just because there's no condemnation for doing what is wrong, it doesn't mean there's no obligation for doing what is right. Some of us with religious backgrounds need to hear that the other way around. There's obligation for doing what is right, but there's no condemnation when you do what's wrong. Some of us need to hear the opposite. 
Just because there's no condemnation for doing what's wrong, it doesn't mean there's no obligation for doing what's right. And that's where there is, and we know this in this church quite well, I'd hope, a big difference between the old covenant era and the way God dealt with people in the book of Isaiah and the way Jesus spoke to the Jewish people in in Jerusalem in that Old Testament uh, era. There's a big difference between that and the way that God deals with us today after the cross. In the vineyard example, the consequences of their disobedience was God destroying them. Yeah, both Isaiah and Jesus say that. The consequence of their disobedience was God seeing the, the end of them, their destruction, the end of that city. And the reason for that is under the Mosaic system, God set them up to succeed, but he did a deal with them. And he said, even though I've set you up to succeed, if you sin, I will become your enemy. And the very one that's helped you succeed, if you sin, I'll be out to destroy you. So it's your choice. But in the new covenant system, God placed all that divine punishment onto Christ at the cross. So we are forgiven. We stand always forgiven. We are unpunishable. We are unpunishable. The law of double jeopardy. You can't punish the same sin twice. Jesus, God punished Jesus. We are unpunishable. Justice, uh, justification means that God says case is closed. In that judicial system of heaven, case is closed, you are innocent, the case is over. So there is no divine penalty for those in Christ who do the wrong thing. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Under Moses, when they disobeyed, God became their enemy. In Christ, when you disobey, God does not become your enemy. You are. You become your own worst enemy. Because stupidity still has consequences. Just because divine punishment's been taken out of the equation, boy, I'm happy for that. Stupidity still has consequences. There are still natural repercussions for doing stupid things. Hello? No? Okay, go walk off a roof and see if see if I'm wrong. God won't punish you for walking off a roof. But you're stupid and you're going to get hurt. There will be consequences for that. I'm convinced that nothing will separate us from God's love, even our own disobedience. Because if you think your disobedience will separate you from God's love, then somehow you're saying that your disobedience is stronger than Jesus' grace on the cross. Who the heck do you think you are? Don't be so arrogant. Don't be so arrogant to believe that your sin is greater than his sacrifice. That is preposterous. And that's spitting on the blood, saying my sin's greater than your forgiveness, expressed 2,000 years ago. That blood's not enough for me. If I sin, I'll be cut off from you. If I sin, you'll stop loving me. That is, that is arrogant. Don't be so stupid. God's gift of grace and righteousness given at the cross is an irrevocable gift. His blood is sufficient for all. You will, God will not be out to punish you ever. He punished Christ on your behalf. God will not become ever your enemy because he was Christ's enemy at the cross. And if you are in him, you are his righteousness forever. That... And so there is a difference between those who are under the old covenant system where God out and out said, I'm going to become your enemy, and those who are in the new 
when God says, I will never remove my covenant of peace from you. But that said, while Jesus' redemption removes the divine curse of sin, it doesn't remove the natural consequences of stupidity. God won't hit you with a stick, but life will. And there are natural repercussions of attempting to defy God's wisdom. If I'm unfaithful to my wife, God won't punish me. But there will be terrible consequences if I do. If I lie, if I cheat, if I steal, God won't become my enemy and he will not love me any less. But if I do those things, God will not cause me to suffer. But if I live a lifestyle of lying, cheating and stealing and gossiping, I will suffer. I just will. And it's not God's doing. It's just me being stupid. Okay? So we get the thing out of our head. God's not going to become your enemy, but you don't need God as your enemy if you still live stupid. Life will slap you up the side of the head itself. And we see this distinction really clearly in the story of Exodus before the commandments came. I write about this in my book. I don't make a big deal. It's in there in the notes. But there's this wonderful, clear picture how when God's people came out of Egypt and they constantly disobey and murmur and complain and God never judges them. In fact, one day he sends manna to them and he says, don't store it overnight. Do you remember that? Exodus 16, don't store it overnight because you've got to trust me, the next day I'm going to give you some more. And it says there that some people disobeyed Moses and stored the manna overnight. Now, did God punish them for that? No. But what happened to that manna? It stank and it got maggots in it. So did they suffer consequences of defying God's order? Yes. God wasn't punishing them. It was just a natural repercussion of going against a God who knows better than them. It says because it stank, Moses got angry, as you would. Yeah, you, you go into your kid's room and they've got a half-eaten apple that's been there for three months under the bed. You get angry. Come on, you just don't do that. And that smell is not God judging that room. That smell is a natural repercussion of being stupid. Don't do it. Moses gets angry, but in Exodus it never says that God got angry. Until they come to Mount Sinai, God gives them a new covenant, the Moses covenant. And God says, from now on, if you disobey me, I myself will penalize you for it. I will punish you. And so in the book of Numbers, after the law is given, they break the Sabbath, they, um, manna comes and quail comes, and because they complain about their food, they disobey God in how they handle the food, God sends plagues and kills people because they disobey. Both times they suffered consequences. Before the mountain, they just suffered natural consequences of disobeying a God who knows better than them. I think you should listen to me now, you twit. Still love you. After the mountain, God says, you disobeyed, I'm now your enemy, I'm going to intentionally send a plague. How many of you know there's a difference there? After the cross, this period of time comes to an end. So God will not go out of his way. God will not punish you and send punishment for when we do wrong. 
But just like before Sinai, just like before the mountain, on this side of the cross, there are still natural repercussions of being a twit. So I have every prerogative to come to you and say, for goodness sake, trust God's wisdom and do what he says. And I'm not going to come and say, God will smite thee if thou doesn't do what he says us. Because I understand that's not the covenant we're in. God won't smite thee, but life will. So please, be mature and cooperate with his instructions. Did I say the word stupid too many times then? I, I said it quite a lot, didn't I? hope my kids don't listen to this. That's not a word we're meant to use in our house. Anyway, what's the point? The point is that Moses' encouragement in Deuteronomy 30, where he says, before you stands life or death, before you stands prosperity or poverty, before you is a successful life or before you is a sucky life. It's in the Hebrew. And he says... Choose life. For goodness sake, just make a good decision and do what God says. That principle, even though the judgment, divine judgment part of it's taken away, that principle still stands. People, choose life. Make good decisions. It is good for you. God knows what is best for you. Choose to cooperate with his instructions. How many of you believe God is a bit smarter than what you are? Okay. A lot smarter. God has set us up for success. And I believe his heart is to see us succeed in every area of life. And I won't go into what success looks like. That's a whole other discussion. Okay, we don't have a phony view of success, which means we never go through suffering. I think we've established that today. Okay. But God has set us up for success like we want to set our children up to succeed in life. And I believe our appropriate responses are these. And I'm wondering whether even now you can hear Holy Spirit and trust him to highlight at least one of these for you. It takes the pressure off me. You, you have to hear God now. Is there an area of your life maybe God's been speaking to you about or that's been highlighted to you and one of these keys really stands out. Lord, today, I appreciate your initiative. Your hands are working and have worked before me. And I appreciate, like that vineyard owner, you have set me up to succeed. And I'm grateful for that. I recognise that today. Lord, today, I believe in your intention. I believe that your heart is for me. No matter what happens in life, I believe your motives are pure honourable and good for me because you are a good father. And Lord, today, I cooperate with your wisdom, with your instructions because I admit today you know better than I do. And so I change my ways to make them reflect yours. I wonder if you could do that today. Amen. Before God sent his people on this great journey, of adventures in glory and grace, to walk into a land that he'd predestined for them, they had a meal together to remember how God was good to them when they didn't deserve it. Once you stand to your feet, welcome Alex, and he will just lead us in some communion. Amen. We go. Can I have the worship team up, please? And if you're on the team, can you grab...
communion, grab some wine and a piece of bread as you go. And um, the rest of us will... What we're going to do is digest that for a minute. Just in the best way we know how. And to remember that part of God's plan for setting us up for a success... It was a pivotal moment in time, and that was across the Calvary. Absolutely pitiful. And um, I want us to think about that now while the team are getting themselves ready and think about what the cross means to you, what the cross means to me. The fact that Christ willingly, because of love for his Father and love for us, love for the world, he willingly laid himself bare at the cross. He willingly allowed his body to be broken. He willingly allowed his blood to be shed to set us up for a success. He did that 2,000 years ago. Come on. God was there so he could be here now. God was there so he could be here now. Come on. I love the fact that Scripture says that he is the beginning and the end. But he's also everything in between. We're in between. And I've honestly, honestly believed today is one of the best generations to be alive. We have so much potential. We have so much going for us. We have so much to share. So as we sing... Please come and help yourself to some juice and some bread and be mindful as we do of the finished work of Calvary and the fact that Christ has been there so he could be here. The fact that Christ finished that work on our behalf. The fact that Christ took our sin, our disease, our sickness, allowed his blood shed that I could stand righteous and holy before a living God. I could come boldly into his throne room this morning and say, God, you are good. And I know that. I know that I know that. So please help yourself. And um, I'll have a, a quick word of prayer in a sec. Come forward. Let's go. Thank you, Lord. You guys can sing when you're ready. Thank you. scripture out of Jeremiah which is not necessarily communion scripture but all scripture is good in some way this is Jeremiah 9 and it says this is what the Lord says 
Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. That's what, the God, that's what God says. Let a man boast that he knows and understands me. For I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Boast in the Lord. That's our boast, that we know him and we show him, and increasingly so. So this morning as we stand, take the emblems in your own time, uh, we're going to finish with a song and uh, praise his loving name. Amen. Father, I thank you for the, um, the bread and the wine that represent, Lord, your, your broken body for us, Father, and your sh- shed blood for us. And Lord, we believe we receive this morning. Father, we thank you that that plan set us up to succeed. And Lord, we partake of that this morning. Father, we believe we receive. Jesus, we thank you for your willingness, Lord, and your courage, Lord, and the fact that you did that for me. Lord, you did that for my brothers and sisters. Lord, you did that for those who don't know you yet. And I thank you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you for your strength and your kindness. Lord, I thank you that you are loving and you are strong. And Lord, that you want what's best for me. And Lord, you know what is best for me. Praise his name. So eat and drink and sing together. Amen. This has been a podcast from Bayside Church International. Thanks for listening.